Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 5. Further developing the point of that we are trading our sorrows for a garment of praise. Which is kind of a neat, neat thing God's done for us. Revelation chapter 5. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God." And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures and elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would open up our eyes to see and behold your beauty. And Father, I pray that in beholding your beauty, that our hearts would be changed from one degree of glory to another. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish a thousand things this morning by seeing a picture of our Savior, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain, a lion from the tribe of Judah. And I just ask, Lord, that you'd be with me, that you would help me to proclaim truth as it's written in your word. Thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you so much for revealing yourself. You've revealed enough so that we can know who you are. And you've revealed yourself sufficiently so that we can have faith in you. And you've revealed yourself in such a way so that we can glory in what we see. So I do pray that, Lord, for the next, as a continuation of what we've already been doing for the next uh, half hour or so, I just pray, Lord, that you would give us just a window into heaven where we will glory in the realities that are ours in Jesus Christ. So I pray all these in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So last week uh, we focused on Jesus Christ as a lion of the tribe of Judah. And um, 
we focused on how he's conquered. And because he conquered, he was able, he was worthy to open up the scrolls that are pictured here in Revelation chapter 5. He's uh, considered worthy to take the scrolls from the one who sits on the throne, the right hand of power. And then he's also able to open up the scrolls and, and, un, and reveal what's written in them. In this way, in this week, I want to focus on what or how Jesus actually becomes worthy, or why is it, or how he actually conquered. We know last week that he was the conquering lion, and we focused on that. And this week, I just want to basically answer this question, how did he conquer, and how is he, and how did he become worthy to take the scrolls and to open, open up the scrolls? So if you remember, the scrolls last week uh, that I referred to probably would have been understood in the, in the cultural context of John's day. Um, it probably contained writings like a contract or a will, and the person who opened up this contract or opened up this will would obviously reveal what was going to take place, and they would also have to, uh, to some extent, carry it out as well. So that person was extremely rare, and um, it was an extremely significant role that they had to un- undo the scrolls, and they understood that in the culture that John was writing it in. So it's kind of a sign, a symbol in the book of Revelation. Revelation is filled with all kinds of symbols. So basically what that means for us is that God has a scroll, and on that scroll most likely is written the contents of how he's going to wrap up history. He's going to uh, bring redemption to its climactic end. And therefore, in this context, the person who is able to do that is extremely rare. In fact, we see the angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open up the scroll and to break its seals? Who is worthy for such a thing? And then it says that no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth is able to open up the scroll. Nobody is able, nobody's worthy to take this scroll from him who sits on the throne and open it up. So that, that's what's going on here. And John finds himself weeping because that's the scenario. And the reason why he weeps is because he realizes, he worries that for him himself and for the church that they've hoped in vain. If redemption would not come to an end, if there wasn't a wrapping up of history, if anything, if, if all of the promises that God had made to his people, including the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of those who hope in Jesus Christ, if that didn't come to an end, if God didn't bring it together, then they hoped in vain. So that's why he's weeping and he's concerned for the churches because they're enduring persecution and hardship and trial and he's worried that they're becoming worldly and so on and so forth. So that's why John is weeping here. And, um, and then, of course, as we go on, we see that John encounters this elder and he says, don't weep any longer. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome, he's conquered, and therefore he, the only one in the whole universe, is actually worthy to open up the scroll and to break its seals. He is the one who is able to bring God's redemptive purposes to its climactic end. He's the one who's going to carry it out, as it were. And uh, we see by John referring to Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah, we see him putting it in the context 
of all of Old Testament history, all of redemptive history. He doesn't just call him Jesus, but he calls him specifically the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So he extends way back to the beginning of redemptive history. And he sees Jesus as the culmination of the royal line that was promised in Genesis 49. So if you guys want to look at Genesis 49 with me, we're going to look at this this blessing that Jacob pronounces on his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is one of the tribes of Israel, and there is an exceptional amount of, of time and just space that is devoted to Judah in specific. And um, he gets more uh, airtime, if you will, than all of the other sons. So Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Um, in verse 8 through 12 here, if, uh, if you haven't found it. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So in Revelation 5, I just challenge you, that's one of the things that, uh, one of the study questions I put in there. Just uh, if, if you guys want to take those out and do it over a, a devotion or something like that, a family worship, um, just try to see how many different connections you can make from this, pro- this blessing that Jacob pronounces on his uh, son, Judah, and what you see carried out in Revelation 5 as it looks into the future. We see Jesus as the descendant of Judah. If you pay attention to the genealogies all throughout the Bible, you will see that he's the descendant of David, he's the descendant of Judah. And he's called the lion who has conquered. We see Jesus in Revelation 5 as the center of praise and worship. That's a lot of space devoted to how Jesus is the center of praise and worship in Revelation 5. He's the final link in God's plan to build a kingdom in which those whom he redeemed would dwell with Jesus, Jesus being on the throne in that kingdom. So at this point, I want to stop and and ask the question. That's kind of all introduction there. And, and, And there's three things I want to focus on here. Number one, how did he do it? How did he conquer? How did he become worthy to open up the scroll? And um, number two, I want to just take a, a sidestep and just glory in that. And number three, what's the effect then? What's the response of uh, Jesus conquering and so on and so forth? So first of all, let me answer the question, how did he do it? How did Jesus Christ conquer? And if you go to, uh, to verse six and verse five, we see him as a lion who's conquering, a ferocious lion. You know, lions are a picture of, of power. Nobody dares mess with a lion, right? And then in verse 6, John sees a lamb standing as have been slain. Now, this is interesting. A conquering lion is pictured on the one hand, and on the other hand, he's a lamb that was slain. Now, if you don't know what the word slay means, it means to kill or to murder in a violent way. That's what it means to slay. So slain is the past participle of slay. So what John is seeing here is a man who has been violently killed, and that's the picture. So it looks like a contradiction, right? If you're looking at this like I am, 
it's hard to imagine how one person can be a lion who rips to shreds uh, lambs. That's what lions do. Lambs are really meek and mild and lions are ferocious. He's a lion, but he's also a lamb. And he's a lamb that was slain. And how can these two things coexist? They seem like a contradiction. And uh, of course the answer is that he's not one or the other. He's both, and because the Bible said so. I mean, the Bible says that he's both, so therefore I, be- I believe that. And, and I want to just maybe draw out how he can be both. How can somebody, how can somebody be the, the lamb that was slain, who was violently killed, and also be this conquering lion that nobody wants to mess with? Um, so he's both of these things, and, and hopefully as we wrestle with that, we'll see the, the glory of Jesus Christ just kind of surface to the top. Let's see if this helps you. Um, I'm thinking of uh, just a sporting analogy here. Let's say I play softball, right? Uh, and this is kind of going off the contradiction idea. If I say I play softball, and then I um, go to the game, and I come home, my wife asks me, how did the game go? And I say, well, um, we conquered. It was really good. And um, she says, oh, yeah? And I say, yes. Well, here's how the game went. The other team got up to bat, and they scored 123 runs, and then it was our turn to bat, and, and we struck out. One, two, three. That was the end of it. And they called the game on, on the count of the 120-run rule. So that was, the end, that was the end of the game. We got 120 runned, actually. So we lost 123 to, to nothing. And then she would say, well, I thought you conquered. You said you conquered. And, of course, that seems like a contradiction, right? That's a contradiction. I, I would say we conquered, but we lost 123 to nothing. Or they scored 123, we, we had zero. Um, and I would say, yeah, you're right. That kind of is a contradiction. Unless, unless, of course, the umpires came to us before the game and they said, any run that this other team scores would count in your favor. So we just went ahead and we acted like we were playing, just to kind of egg them on. And they were scoring runs left and right. And when we came up, we struck out. And the newspapers tomorrow, because my softball league is so um, important, the newspapers tomorrow will all read that that team was totally crushed. So that's kind of uh, maybe a helpful analogy for you, where um, perhaps it's somewhat similar to that with Jesus Christ. And the way I'm drawing this connection together is that the reason why Jesus Christ can be both the lamb who was slain and the conquering lion is because... Jesus actually conquered by being slain. Does that make sense? The way that Jesus conquered was by being totally crushed. That's the way that he conquered. It goes totally antithetical to the way that we understand conquering. But the way that Jesus Christ conquered and overcame was by being a lamb who was slain. So there's a glory here. This is, this is what Jesus accomplished when he was slain. This is what Jesus accomplished when he went to the cross and was crucified. He made a sacrifice for sins, right? Sacrifice, he became an expiation, he takes away sin. His blood became propitiation. Now, that's a big $10 word, but it simply means that it averts the wrath of God. So here's the person. The wrath of God is going to totally annihilate it. Jesus stands in the way and not only averts the wrath of God so that the wrath of God doesn't hit the person, but he turns God towards us and he, he makes God propitious towards us. That means favorable, kind. 
So Jesus, not only by his blood, makes a propitiation. He doesn't just avert the wrath of God from us, but he makes God favorable towards us. That's another thing that he accomplished in his death. He reconciles sinners to God. He removes the curse of the law. He releases us from the bondage of sin. We're held captive by our sin, and Jesus Christ, by being the Lamb who was slain, releases us from that bondage of sin. He overcomes the power of death by resurrecting. I think it's interesting to point out here that in this picture, John sees the Lamb standing as been slain. I was meditating on that this morning. People who are slain are dead. Dead people don't stand. Jesus Christ is standing as the lamb who was slain, which means he has triumphed over death. He becomes the righteousness for his people so that we who have nothing to hope in in ourselves, we can be accepted before God because Christ has earned righteousness. And he offers that to us. He seals it by becoming this lamb who's slain by his death and resurrection. He destroys the gates of hell and he crushes Satan. Now, these are just a couple of the things that the lamb who was slain actually accomplishes. And that explains why his death is the way to his conquering, is the way to him becoming the lion who overcomes and conquers. And here's another point I really want us to understand here. It also highlights the centrality of the lamb who was slain as the high point of God's plan of redemption, to redeem a people for himself so that we can enter in. Because on the one hand, we have triumph, and on the other hand, we have his lamb, the the lamb who was slain. They both come together. Uh, Here's another, uh, another picture that might help you. One of the things that will be in perfect continuity between this uh, earthly existence as we know it and the new earth um, for Jesus is going to be his hands. His hands will be pierced forever and ever and ever on the new earth. And his feet will be pierced forever. And I think I get that from when uh, he went to Thomas after he was resurrected. He received his glorified body. And the way that Jesus proved to Thomas that he really was the risen Lord Jesus is he said, look, Thomas, put your hand here. Put your finger here. There's a hole, which means I'm the lamb who was slain. And in heaven, that will go to serve as a reminder. When we interact with Jesus, he will have his glorified body. He will still be pierced. And the reason why that is so is because it will be a constant forever reminder of the triumph that he accomplished and the way that he accomplished it, namely by being pierced for our transgressions. So these two themes come together, victory and his death. These are the high points, the pinnacle to where it all kind of climaxes here. I hope that makes sense. So now we get to the point where uh, we want to take, we want to get out of the car here and, and look at the scenic overlook. We don't want to just plow through. I want to take some time and just glory. I just want to glory in this reality that Jesus is both lion and lamb. Okay, so like if you're on a road trip or something like that, you don't just want to go from A to B. Uh, maybe sometimes if you're driving through, you know, Nebraska or something like that. No offense to anybody who's from Nebraska, but uh, there's not a lot of scenic overlooks there. But... If you are on a scenic drive, you don't want to just 
go right through. You want to stop at the places of the scenic overlook and take a, take a peek, right? Take it in. And that's what we're going to do right now. So let's get out of the car and we are going to take a little scenic overlook into the glories of Jesus Christ here being both lion and lamb. Jonathan Edwards becomes particularly helpful here. He, uh, he has a lot of sermons exalting the excellence and the worth of Jesus Christ. And he says that the glory of Christ sparkles when we consider the opposite things, the opposite uh, qualities that come together in this one person. It's a rare thing for things like a lion <laughs> and a lamb who is slain to come together in one person. And the fact that that happens in Jesus Christ um, is a glorious thing. And he says that in the person of Christ... Uh, meet together infinite highness and infinite condescension. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. I'm going to kind of just say a few things about that. So in, in Christ, come together infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace. We'll just pause there for a minute. Infinite justice. At the cross, I would say that at the cross of Jesus Christ, that's where Many of God's attributes and many of his wisdoms and many of his glories come to a crescendo. They're most expressed at the cross. And here's how I see it for justice. See, God, uh, perhaps you've asked this question before. Why does God actually have to demand payment for sin, right? I mean, he's God after all. Couldn't he just kind of forget about sin, you know? Let's just forget about this whole thing. Why slay your son or why make people go to hell and so on and so forth? Why, why, do, why can't we just all just be forgiven? Why can't we just all get along and just go on with it? And the reason is because God is glorious. He's holy. He's holy. And therefore, when we sin against him, when we throw a stone at the face of the creator in the universe and call him names and so on and so forth, that's figurative uh, talking there, um, we sin against God. We defame him. That's an infringement. That's a trespass against the holy creator. And it would be wrong for God not to punish that. That needs to be paid for. That needs to be taken care of. So the two options then are, because all have sinned, all have defamed God, the two options then for God to be just, he has to make payment somehow. And number one, either we can, uh, we can bear the consequences of our sin, and this is, I think, why hell has to be an eternal thing. Because God demands righteousness. He demands perfection. He demands payment for sin. And therefore, um, we can never, on our own merits and on our own account, we can never come to that level. We can never actually pay it off. Which means that we will be, in, in a sense, paying it off for eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever. We will never actually get to that point where we can do it. So therefore, we will be under the punishment of our sin forever. So one option one is, is hell, the punishment, the wrath of God. And number two is Jesus Christ. He makes a payment for sin. And, and because Jesus is an infinite being, because Jesus is righteous, because he's perfect, God looks at Jesus and he says, that's a satisfactory payment for sin. So therefore... Justice is displayed infinitely on the cross. And on the same level, grace is displayed infinitely too. For those who are saved by the cross, God's grace is ours in infinite measure because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So, we see infinite justice and infinite grace. Infinite glory 
and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, and deepest reverence towards God and equality with God, infinite worthiness of good, and the greatest patience under the suffering of evil. So he's made the world. He deserves only good, but rather he's the lamb that went to the slaughter, and he didn't complain. He has an exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation. Self-sufficiency and an entire trust and reliance on God. These are things that don't go together too much. We know that. We all slip into self-sufficiency and we forget about God. Right? It's easy to do that. Jesus was actually self-sufficient. Here's the thing. We're not self-sufficient, and we still forget about God. Jesus is self-sufficient, and he's totally submitted and relying on God. That's amazing. The glory of Christ. We like people like this, right? We, we like people who embody opposite ends of the spectrum. We like people who are silly and lighthearted and you can laugh with. And at the same time, on the other hand, we like people, those same people who are Serious as well, right? They have a serious side to them. You can cry with them. People who are only silly and lighthearted eventually become trite and maybe annoying. Or at least they become irrelevant, right? But people who are both in their character serious and deep and silly and lighthearted and kind of fluffy at times, those two things come together in a person and that's a really good quality, so that's, I'm just drawing out here why it's so good that uh, Jesus embodies these two things, these two things that come together opposite. Uh, I had a friend uh, uh, in college, um, people who are very important yet approachable. Think about that. Very important, high and lofty people yet approachable. That's a praiseworthy quality. I was going to tell a story about a friend I had in college who, um, he's a good friend of mine back in the day, and um, he was a great athlete, right? He was actually training at one point for the Olympics. He was going to be a, a speed skater. And um, he probably would have had a shot at, at competing in the 2006 Olympic Games, but he got injured, and that sidelined him. But the, the odd thing about this guy is that, is that he really he didn't come across as a big shot. He was, he was just so much like the rest of us. And he really kind of was, in some ways, a, a step above the rest. He knew a lot of very important people. He was really successful and so on and so forth in this area of his life. And, um, but yet, you would never guess it. You would never guess it. You almost had to drag out of him just details about, you know, what's it like to, you know, train and so on and so forth and know these people. You turn on the TV and he'd tell you stories about, you know, the guys that were competing and so on because he roomed with them and so, so on and so forth. And yet, he was kind of the guy that got <laughs> he had the reputation of, of never being able to get a date. You know, that's a, he was like really important or really, really successful, and yet he just he couldn't seem to get a date from a calendar. And, um, and uh, it, it's kind of funny how those two things just go together. Um, and, and because of that, a lot of people had respect for him. A lot of people had respect for him. And um, they, they, uh, they just looked at him and they said, that's amazing how he really is. Uh, almost an Olympic athlete, but at the same time, you would never know it, you know? So that's a praiseworthy, praiseworthy quality here. And, and I just want to turn our attention back to Jesus Christ right now. 
And let me go back to this idea of infinite highness and infinite condescension, okay? So Christ is infinitely high, and yet at the same time, he condescended to the lowest, to the lowest form. The, uh, Philippians 2 says that he, became, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He became obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. So therefore, um, think about that. Jesus Christ is the one who is higher than all the princes of the earth. He's higher than all the kings of the earth. He's higher than the highest heaven. He's higher than the angels. And yet, he was born in Bethlehem, this lowly town. Oh, Bethlehem, you're too lowly, too, too little to be numbered among the clans of Judah. He had nobody as parents. He didn't come from any kind of a great legacy or anything like that in the worldly sense. And, and um, he, you know, he had a, just a, a humble life. And yet, he became, he was acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 says. He's acquainted with grief. And I think that the payoff here is that there's nobody who Jesus isn't accessible to. There's nobody, nobody, not even the lowest sinner, the most despicable sinner. Jesus availed himself to children. Jesus availed himself to the blind, to the sick. He, he, he availed himself to the tax collectors, the outcasts uh, of society. All these people, like the untouchables, Jesus Christ availed himself to those people. And it's because he condescended to be so low. And yet he's infinitely high. Think about the bridge that Jesus spans. It goes way down and way up. There's nobody who's too low, that's too low to, to, that, that Jesus isn't accessible to. And yet they can get on this bridge, so to speak, and it will transport them up to the highest place. They will, because Jesus is divine, we can be divine partakers with him in his glory. That's a glorious thing. That, talk about having a friend in a high place, the highest place of all. So that's the glory in Jesus Christ being infinitely high and infinitely condescending at the same time. He just covers such a wide gamut there. And then Jesus is also exemplified, I'm just going back to this list here, as um, having a spirit of obedience while possessing supreme of, uh, dominion over heaven and earth. These two things don't go together, right? Having an, an exceeding spirit of obedience while possessing supreme dominion over heaven and earth. Our history books are filled to the brim with people who rise in power. And what do they do with their power? It usually turns them to do evil, immoral things, right? When people gain, uh, just, there's just too many stories of this. People who gain power usually don't do the good things with it. They use it for evil. Corruption seeps in. And uh, here we see Jesus having an exceeding level of obedience to God the Father. Think about this. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, it was an expression of his obedience to God the Father. He said in Matthew 26, Not my will, but your will be done. So he was, he was showing that he was totally submitted to the will of God the Father. See, this is a really good thing here. Brothers and sisters, consider this. We want this kind of a ruler. We don't want the kind of ruler that grows in their power and does bad things with it. We don't like rulers who have increasing amounts of power only to use it for corruption and evil and selfishness and to promote their selfish agenda. Jesus Christ has infinite power. 
He has supreme dominion over heaven and earth. But at the same time, he's totally submitted to the will of God the Father. This is a good connection. This is a good thing here. Think about that. Think about the fact that that Jesus will be a perfect ruler because he is submitted and he's totally obedient to God the Father and bringing about his purposes. So, um, last year, I would just want to focus in and then we'll make some uh, so a closing comment and, and conclusion. The effect of Jesus Christ being the lamb who was slain. And, and, and in a word, it's worship. So think about this. I said earlier, the scrolls, they could not be taken. They could not be undone. Uh, there was one scroll. The scroll could not be taken out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And it could not be broken open so as to be carried out. But Jesus can carry out the scroll. He can carry out the will of God. And it's because he was the lamb who was slain. The reason why God's purposes of redemption can come to pass in Jesus Christ is because he was the lamb who was slain, because he did make payment for sins, because he did reconcile people to God. He ransomed people for God from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And it says in Revelation 5 in the song that we will be a kingdom and priests unto God. This is the glorious end. Jesus Christ is able, he is worthy to take this scroll and wrap up history because he was the lamb who was slain. And because of that, he is, he is uh, mentioned as the, um, as the one who is worthy. And he is the center of praise and worship. That's the rest. It's, so, it's like so woven throughout the chapter of, um, of Revelation there, Revelation 5, that Jesus is getting worshipped from all creation. All creation is joining in in the song of the Lamb. All creation is worshiping and extolling the greatness of Jesus Christ because he was the Lamb who was slain. It mentions three times throughout Revelation 5 that he is the, the Lamb who was slain. They're constantly drawing attention to the fact that he's the one who is worthy to open up the scrolls and carry out redemption because of the fact that he was slain. So this is how he triumphs over Satan, over sin, all of these things, and accomplishes the purposes of God. This is why he's worthy to carry it out. He's seen as God, the almighty ruler. Revelation, as I said before, is filled with symbols, right? It's filled with symbols. And it says that he has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Um, seven throughout the Bible is, is used figuratively as perfection or fullness. So when it says that Jesus has seven horns, he has perfection. And horn symbolizes power, right? So I'm just, I don't know where the horn is or what it is, but uh, horn symbolizes power. So when it says that he has seven horns, he has perfect power, right? And then it says that he has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. He has perfect knowledge of what's going on in the earth. Omnipotence, that's a, that's a big $10 word again. It's two words coming together. Omni, all, potence, power. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. Omni, all, science, or shints, um, come together, and it's all-knowledge. Jesus is all-powerful. He's all-knowledge. He's all-knowing. There's nothing that he doesn't know. And because he is... Um, 
the lamb who was slain, he's the conquering lion because he's perfectly submitted to the will of God, because he loves God and he esteems God the highest. All of these things coming together, his all-powerful, all-knowing, totally submitted, come together in the lion and the lamb who was slain, and that's a really good combination. It's a really good combination for a ruler who is going to wrap up history and reign with his people on the new earth. That's the kind of ruler that we want to follow. That's the kind of ruler that we will be delighted and we will glory in worshiping and serving in the new earth forever and ever and ever and ever. So this is why he becomes the center of worship. And notice also um, when it focuses on the sevenfold that he has seven horns, seven eyes, and so on, um, that it, it refers to his deity, that Jesus Christ is God. Um, notice, too, that, that, the, that all of the elders and the living creatures and the angels and those that are redeemed are joining in the song, and they're saying, Worthy are you, and they ascribe power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So if you count it with me, that's seven. They, they list off seven... Um, praises. So there's a sevenfold praise of Jesus Christ, meaning there's a perf- perfect praise. It lines itself with, with his deity, that he is God. And so Jesus Christ gets the sevenfold praise and it affirms his deity. So in conclusion to that, let me just wrap up by saying that there's hope for the church. The first couple of chapters of Revelation 1, 2, 3, John is writing a letter to seven churches and he's encouraging them to, to overcome. If you read the last couple of verses of, of Revelation 3, that's kind of the theme. He's encouraging his people to overcome. And then 4 through 22 looks into the future, right? And, and right off the bat, we see Jesus Christ on the throne, ruling. He's ruling on the throne. And then we see him as the one who overcame. And how did he overcome? He overcame by suffering. That's the theme of Revelation. Jesus Christ, we follow suit too. Uh, the Bible says that he gave us an example to follow in his steps, which means that many times we can be discouraged as the church, right? A lot of times we say truth and it's not welcomed, right? It's not welcomed with a lot of, with, with you know, wide, arms wide open. When we preach truth, when we preach Christ, and I would argue that our world is becoming increasingly hostile to gospel truth, if you stand on truth in a day and age like today, and it's probably just going to get worse, you will increasingly be ostracized. And the message of hope here is Christ's way will emerge as victorious in the end. There will be a day where Jesus Christ will bring the end of, of redemptive purposes. And Jesus has triumphed. Even though it looks as if he was slain, as, as if Satan had won the day, Christ is really, he's really triumphed. And therefore, the church has hope in triumphing as well. So, glory in that. And I just hope that that's encouraging to us. That's the pattern that we make progress. It may not look all the time like we're making a lot of progress, but in the end, Jesus Christ has triumphed and therefore... His church will also triumph as well. Um, think about this. Um, another point just to make, out, make of the glory of Christ here. If, if Jesus crushed Satan by becoming a lamb that was slain, just think about what he'll do when the lion comes out to play. 
Just think about that final day. If Christ crushes Satan, if he crushes everything that opposes us by being the lamb who was slain, just think about the power in that day where he will end history once and for all decisively. That's what's coming for the church. So praise the Lord for his hope, and I just pray that you will fix your eyes on the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, and that will be encouraging and feeding for your soul. So let's pray here this morning as we close. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your mercies to us. Thank you so much for the lion who was conquered and also the lamb. And I just pray, pray, Lord, that we would be reflective of what we just heard. I pray that we would be reflective of the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And I do ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see who he really is and that it would create worship in us. So go before us, I pray. May uh, anything that I said that isn't of you or not helpful fall away. And I pray, God, that you would simply just really refine in the hearts of your people um, the takeaways here this morning. So I just ask that you would be exalted in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.